President Trump furious. The president livid at Democrats for stealing his staffers. Those are his words. We're talking about staffers who will be working for House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff on investigating the president. On immigration, I will direct the Department of Labor to investigate all abuses of visa programs that undercut the American worker. We will not surrender our constitutional responsibility for oversight. Uh, that would make us delinquent in our duties. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. We've often discussed on this show how the liathon that is this presidency, the lie ultramarathon, the lie-trathon, was inaugurated with Trump's laughable description of the crowds at his inauguration. Trump even put dear departed Sean Spicer in a kind of headlock and made him say this was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, when it was not. Poor kid, Spicer instantly became a gif. And there's no way that after the icebergs melt, Sean Spicer will be remembered by the beavers who are the sole survivors of the apocalypse as anything but the man who said largest audience, period. Spicer, it should be said, regrets making that easily and immediately falsifiable claim about empirical reality. But it seems the inauguration didn't just kick off this particular phase of Trump's lying life. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York subpoenaed the committee that put together the Live in Infamy inauguration. This week, that means criminal investigations into the inauguration's money are ramping up, as they should be. And with SDNY, where any crimes turned up are not, unlike federal crimes, pardonable. Trump's inaugural committee raised an eye-popping $106.7 million dollars. That was double the record set by Barack Obama's 2009 inaugural. And there have been many questions forever about where that money came from and where it went. Now, the scope of documents requested by SDNY on this subject might be described as the largest subpoenaed cache of documents, period. But I haven't checked that out, and thus I would never say it. But SDNY is investigating everything from false statements to money laundering. Investigators are said to be interested in the inaugural committee's spending, its donations, whether donations came from illegal foreign sources, and potential corruption involving favors for donors. Rick Gates, remember him, the former Trump campaign aide Manafort running buddy who helped run the inaugural committee and struck that plea deal with Mueller in February? He's been cooperating with SDNY prosecutors. And Michael Cohen, that presidential fixer who helped fundraise for the inaugural, he's another major figure in this, though as usual with him, it's not entirely clear whether he's helping with the investigation or whether he's a target of it. Oh, jailbound Cohen, is he friend or foe to the feds? That, like the mysteries of the inauguration, will come out in due time. My guest today is Anthony Cormier. He's a frontrunner among the spelunkers who are following the money through the caves of Trump corruption, compromise, and conspiracy. He is an investigative reporter for BuzzFeed News and based in New York City. While working for the Tampa Bay Times, Cormier won the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. So he won this prize, jumped to BuzzFeed News, and is on the Trump beat. He's talking with me today about his 
two latest scoops. He said two in two days this week in BuzzFeed News. The first has to do with a rarely discussed Russian-American player in the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting. That guy had some curious financial dealings before and after that meeting. The second is a vast cache of primary documents that are going to keep American citizens guessing for a lifetime. These documents show the evolution of Trump's business dealings with Russia during his campaign for the presidency. I will be back with Anthony in just a minute. But first, the tweets. Ed Gillespie, who ran for the governor of the great state of Virginia against Ralph Northam, must now be thinking malpractice and dereliction of duty with regard to his opposition research staff. If they find that terrible picture before the election, he wins by 20 points. Democratic Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia just stated, quote, I believe that I'm not either of the people in the photo, close quote. This was 24 hours after apologizing for appearing in the picture and after making the most horrible statement on super late term abortion. Unforgivable. I see Schumer is already criticizing my State of the Union speech, even though he hasn't seen it yet. He's just upset that he didn't win the Senate after spending a fortune like he thought he would. Too bad we weren't given more credit for the Senate win by the media. Everyone is asking how Tiger played yesterday. The answer is great. He was long, straight, and butted fantastically well. He shot a 64. Tiger is back and will be winning majors again. Not surprisingly, Jack also played really well. His putting is amazing. Jack and Tiger like each other. Joining me on the line is Anthony Cormier. He's an investigative reporter for BuzzFeed News. Anthony, welcome back to TrumpCast. Thanks for having me. So as you know, as I've made perfectly clear, you are one of my favorite guests, one of our favorite guests on this show, because you and BuzzFeed and your colleagues have really been driving the story of Trump's financial entanglements with Russia. I don't know where to start. Uh, you can start wherever you'd like. All right. Well, let's do dealer's choice because you've got to have one of them sure. fresher on your mind. We can start with the story on Rina Mekmeshin, the uh, Russian-born former military official who has become sort of a, a, a man about town in Washington, D.C. He is the guy that every or many of the Kremlin's apparatchiks turn to when they need something done in D.C. And well, what's interesting about Mr. Akhmetchen is that uh, he was one of the attendees at the now infamous June 2016 meeting at Trump Tower. Yeah. And so what happens is, is after these, after the New York Times first reports on the existence of this meeting, banks uh, and uh, the special counsel's team and Congress begin to ask for any of the financial transactions, suspicious transactions made by or received by any of the attendees. And in the past, you'll recall, we've reported on wild amounts of money coming into and out of the accounts belonging to the Aguilaro family, yep. uh, belonging to Mr. Cavalazza, who was at the meeting, uh, Mr. Goldstone, who was at the meeting. Yeah. Uh, and now we sort of turned our attention to Mr. Akhmetchen's role here. And bankers indeed found half a million dollars in suspicious checks, wire transfers, and cash deposits into his bank account. 
uh, shortly before and after, I think, the meeting, uh, there's a couple of things going on, right? Like, one, these transactions are suspicious, according to the bankers, on their own, right? They are anybody that deposits $20,000 cash cash into their bank account is going to trigger a, a, a notice, right? A, a cash transaction report, basically. Yeah. But then there's all of this money coming from these foreign actors who bankers are saying, say, are trying to influence uh, American policy, right? They're trying mm-hmm. to get this Magnitsky Act overturned. And so bankers are wondering, you know, Mr. Agnetchen, he never filed proper disclosures to say he's a, a, acting on behalf of a foreign agent, and yet we see foreign uh, agents paying him. Uh, so there, that's one of the reasons they flagged it. The second is, of course, that the some of the payments are in close proximity to uh, to uh, really important events uh, mm-hmm. during the 2016 campaign and um, during the Mueller investigation. So we see, for instance, a couple of payments shortly before and after his attendance at this meeting. And You'll recall, he shows up at the meeting, he says he's in town, New York, just to see a play, and he's wearing this, you know, he's this pink t-shirt, which everyone has criticized him for, and <laughs> why, but he shows up at Trump Tower with his pink t-shirt and blue jeans, and he's like, I had no idea. Yet, bankers who are beginning to sort of look into his his actual bank account say, oh, this is unusual, right? Hmm. Who, why, why is he putting $20,000 in, and then, uh, you know, right before and right after the event, and then again, they see a, a larger $22,000 paint uh, cash deposit um, in the same month that he is called to testify for the multi. We talk a lot about cash when it comes sure. to Russian figures related to this and also some of the go-betweens. Honestly, I know this is a little bit embarrassing. I don't know exactly what that means. Is that a wire transfer? Is that called a cash thing? Or is he no, bringing cash. a briefcase? Oh, no, cash. cash. Yes. Actual cash, cash money, like like dollar bills. Well, in this case, probably one hundred dollar bills. But yes, a cash transaction report is is, is what it is. It says it is. It is an actual deposit of cash money into a bank account. It's actual money, <laughs> which is always odd, right? Like, how do you even? I mean, I get you can, but like, it just it's a striking amount of cash. And the reason the banks flag it is because obviously they have no way of knowing where the money came from or what it was to be used for, and they make. They also pay particular attention to round dollar amounts and round numbers. Yeah, because because they say that like if you're say you have an invoice, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. you're paying Virginia. I'm going to pay you to paint my home. Yeah. Well, the likelihood of me paying you to pay my home is a, a you know a, you know a dollar per hour, whatever the, the hourly rate weight is. I'm not paying you a lump sum. I'm probably paying you twenty thousand one hundred nineteen dollars and twenty cents, right? Mm-hmm. Like an invoice is generally yeah. Not around that. I remember so, this coming up with Paul Manafort's rugs right, um, that also right. seem to have no tax or no change on them, or even it's just all fives and zeros. Right. So bankers, every time they see cash in large denominations in round dollars, they are automatically suspicious. And it makes sense, right? Like, who does business that way is what the mm-hmm. banks are essentially saying. Yeah. And it's not that they, it's not as though they didn't, you know, they're not trying to understand this. It's they are. And I think it's a sort of crucial nexus for congressional investigators and for the various and sundry uh, law enforcement bodies that are that are looking into the 2016 election and beyond. Just so that, you know, we've paid some attention to Natalia Veselnitskaya, the Russian lawyer and representative of Prevazan and the Kremlin, who was in the room in this Trump Tower meeting. But you're talking about, I just want to be clear that we have his name, Renat Akhmetshin. 
Yes, Serena Lakmetson, who was a pal to Miss Veselinskaya. She was the one that actually invited him actually to the to the meeting, and they were working together yep. along with Fusion GPS. Let's be clear. Yeah. The, the Fusion GPS, the creators and commissioners of the, the notorious, infamous Trump dossier, yeah. uh, were also working on this Prevazon case together. I think we need to, to take one beat because there is a little bit of MAGA blowback sort of on Twitter here where it's like, well, it must be Fusion that paid him. I, I need to be clear that the banks are not saying that, our documents are not saying that, our stories are saying that. These are not payments from Fusion. They, these are not payments that go to Fusion. Mm-hmm. I understand that Fusion's an easy target for, for the hard right to sort of begin to pick up our stories, but that's just simply not true. It's not what happened here. These are nonprofit foundation based in Washington, D.C., a mm-hmm. uh, foreign official whose, whose father is, is close to the Kremlin in, in Dennis Katzen. And, and, it's, and it's a couple of American operators as well. No matter how many times I go over Natalia Veselnitskaya's big adventurous week in New York City and Glenn Simpson's of Fusion GPS, it's still worth it to me to get the details right. Glenn Simpson is working on two different projects, and Natalia Veselnitskaya is also working on two different projects. It seems to me pretty clear that Fusion is a mercenary company that will take all different clients. Uh, That's what Glenn Simpson more or less has said in his congressional testimony, that they work for whoever is hiring. He does investigative work. So we know very well that he was originally hired by a conservative group, then by Democrats Mm -hmm. to pursue opposition research on Donald Trump that resulted in the Steele Mm -hmm. dossier. But the main thing that he was focused on this week June of 2016 was his work for this company, Prevazon. Mm-hmm. And that's associated with this oligarch, Katsia. What's his first name? Dennis Katsev. Katsev. Yep. So one of his major projects, because a witness against him was Bill Browder, who's been on Trumpcast yes. many times, who wanted to talk about Prevazon's shady financial practices. Browder was working closely with Preet Bharara to yep. help prosecute this case. And the reason that the legal defense for Prevazon and the litigation support team at Fusion wants to smear Browder is not only is he a witness against Prevazon, but he's a witness more broadly against the Kremlin because it was his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, whose death he considers the Kremlin responsible for, and he's imposed the sanctions via the Magnitsky Act. So Bill Browder is a thorn in the Kremlin side. Renat Akhmetshin may have been getting his money. I mean, I don't want to ask you to speculate, but he may have been getting his money from Prevazon. We can tell you where he got his money from. He got his money from a number of various sort of entities that are all the nexuses is is, is the Prevazon case, right? It's it's Baker Hostetler, the law firm. Yep. It's uh, Edward Lieberman, uh, uh, who, who signed up to sort of be a legal advisor or legal sort of agent uh, to look at Prevazon. He received it directly from Dennis Katzev, the owner of Prevazon, who's yep. been sued by the government. So these are pretty direct. It's not a speculation. It's This is money that most of it, most of it, outside of the cash deposits, most of it appears to be flowing um, directly from the, the their work on the Prevazon. That's great to know. So since a lot of the speculation or coming to consciousness over the last two years has surrounded how does the Kremlin actually operate, they had a lot of boots on the ground in New York working different angles on Prevazon. So Glenn Simpson, who believed he was working, so he thought he was working for this law firm. He said he was working for the law firm. He may have known he was working for the Kremlin but to smear Bill Browder or at least gather opposition research on this key witness. Then you have Akhmetshin, who he's described as Russian-American. He was born in the Soviet Union, but I believe he's a citizen of the United States. At this, at this okay. Point. 
And a lobbyist, he doesn't have to register her. He has registered as a foreign agent. Well, that's therein is the nut of this, right? It's yeah. So Mr. I've mentioned has, has registered as a lobbyist on behalf of international adoptions, which, as you will call, is one of the main sort of sticking points for President Trump. Mm-hmm. But the bankers who flag all of these financial transactions say that the money makes him appear to be working on behalf of a foreign agent, which is a sort of old, obscure law that seems to have new teeth, right, mm-hmm. under under the Mueller operating theory. Because yep. we've seen both Rick Gates and Mr. Manafort, both of them charged with uh, violating this law. It's called FARA, Foreign Agents Registration Act, right, where yeah. you have to tell the government or the public, I am lobbying. But not only am I lobbying, I'm lobbying on behalf of the interests of a foreign government's aid on entity. Yeah. Like, uh, so and so. Mr. Akechin is uh, said publicly that he didn't feel he needed to do that. There is an exemption for people who work for law firms. We've got some sources who say, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But it is clear that the bank said, geez, Louise, we don't see him registering as a foreign agent. And yet he's accepting all of this money. We're going to file these these reports because that's why we feel the transactions are suspicious. You can cut through all of it by saying the bank's thought he was violating this yeah. and decided they need to tell law enforcement about it. So what stands out here a little bit is that another thing we've discovered in the last two years is how often the banks look the other way and FinCEN looks the other way, even on suspicious cash payments on round numbers yep. on the first account. And then on the second count, how lax they are about FARA, which is deceptively named. It sounds like some kind of clerical thing, Foreign Agent Registry Act, which comes close to what in simpler times we might have just called espionage. Yeah, it's pretty close. I mean, it's like the reason this law is important and has been important for the last couple of years, because it is a way to identify whose interests officials in in Washington are acting, right? We should know who they're sort of backing, who they're lobbying on behalf of. And you know, we're seeing now that, the, that there's new bite here with this law. We've seen it, um, and we're, we're told that going forward, it's a bit that Congress is really interested in. Yeah, I mean, having a journalist like Glenn Simpson, formerly of the Wall Street Journal, go from working for the Wall Street Journal, working presumably for readers, as you all do at BuzzFeed News, to working for clients. And you and I have been journalists for a long time. I certainly know people who've been seduced by foundations, not the Kremlin, but foundations that sound like do-gooders. And you get to do what seems like what you used to do. I've even done a little of this marketing. And it's pretty close to what you used to do. Slightly uncannily, a little bit has a thumb on the scale for a cause. And sometimes it gets more and more like that. But anyway, Glenn Simpson starts producing documents for clients. And those documents put torque on what he does, if not entirely compromise it. You don't have to sign on to that. But it is one of the strange ways that Americans start to inhabit this gray area between the legitimate world and the illegitimate world, as I've heard it called, a kind of weird Cold War that needs a lot of intermediaries. You need a lot of Natalia Veselnitz guys and Paul Manafort and even Ivanka Trumps that sort of introduce shady figures and help launder either their reputations or their money or both. We think that the sunlight is a pretty good disinfectant here and we need more of it. And we, we're hopeful that this story is not, this is not, hey, we've got collusion or we've got money laundering. We've got the, we're just hoping to sort of lay bare the connections here so that the public understands who's operating for whom and why. I mean, I think that's a really 
important piece. Like when, for instance, Mr. Ock mentioned was knocking on the doors of Congress people attempting to talk to them about international adoptions. Yeah. These records, these records show us, in fact, no, this wasn't about international adoptions. This was about the overturning of a law that was reviled by the Kremlin in the Magnitsky Act. This was a deeply, deeply harmful law to this sort of oligarch class. Yes. And so what Mr. Akhmetshin is doing is, you know, sort of forward-facing saying, no, this is about international adoptions, and don't worry about who's paying me, I'm not representing foreign agents, when in fact the banks are saying, well, wait a second, we think you are, and here's who's paying you, and here's actually what you really want to accomplish, right? Mm-hmm. So stories like this, we hope can create a sort of a level of transparency into this very murky, swampy world that uh, heretofore did not, does not exist, right? It is amazing how little pieces of it are becoming clearer and clearer as time goes on. There was some mm-hmm. time a few months ago, you and I may have been talking, where suddenly it didn't seem as murky as it once had. And I don't know what yeah. thing changed it, but it certainly has a lot to do with your other scoop at BuzzFeed, which is the evolution of these revelations that confounded Trump Tower Moscow deal. Yeah, still a thing, isn't it? You know, it, Helen, the face that launched a thousand ships. I mean, this ambition to build Europe's tallest tower in Moscow. I mean, there's something so cartoonish about it. You know, like you <laughs> so, can see it drawn on a map. Right. It's a gateway to Eastern Europe. It's got his name blazoned at the top. It's, yeah. you know, it's in Skyscraper City, which is a sort of, you know, a, a, a growing part of Moscow. <laughs> it's essentially, you know, we keep returning to this way. Um, Jason Leopold, my partner, and the new Fazian Goreshi, we've all been sort of picking at this for a while. Azian Goreshi, I think we should name everyone because BuzzFeed has had financial setbacks like a lot of media companies, and it's really important to pay attention to the incredible job you guys are doing, and you work in teams. Right, we do, yeah. So Azian uh, took this on, and really drove the Renatic Mention story, and you know, Jason and I have been working this for, uh, you know, a long time. You know, we've been interested in Trump Tower Moscow since last summer. No one was able to match us when we first published it. No one's been able to match us since we published. I'm sure that there are people out there wondering if it's true. I can assure you that we just decided to run the receipts because we didn't really want to bother with anybody asking. I can testify to Trumpcast listeners when you run into Anthony Cormier at a party he drags out his backpack to show you what pretty much are actual receipts. <laughs> to. I like that you leave nothing to chance and opinion. Okay, let's just describe this. It's almost a dump. Well, so what we did was, is we've been reporting on this forever, and like we decided, you know what, it's really hard for people to understand. It might be hard for people to understand how deeply sort of into this deal uh, Michael Cohen and Felix Sater were, and the Trump Organization truly was. Like, so we, we decided, let's just put it on a damn timeline, and we could show readers, right, day by day. You've got Trump on the campaign trail publicly praising Vladimir Putin, and then in the background, you've got his associates saying, we we, we got to get Putin on board, we've got to get Putin on board. And so by putting this on a timeline, it helps, we hope that it helps readers understand that oh, okay, this was happening publicly, but behind the scenes, they were sort of working it. I think there are a couple of really interesting things that we published that maybe haven't gotten enough traction yet. So these are Trump organization documents. These are Trump organization documents, emails, text messages, renderings, architectural plans, business contracts. I've said before that you and Jason Leopold and Azine and Emma Loop are our Woodward and Bernstein here, and I'll stand by that. And if you guys are Woodward and Bernstein, this cash comes awfully close to the Nixon tapes. These are documents. They're primary documents. 
They're laid out on BuzzFeed News, every bit as readable as the Steele dossier. Tell us which ones interest you the most. Okay, so like the first one that interests me the most is so the Trump, you'll you'll remember last couple of weeks, Rudy Giuliani has come out and said, well, there's no, this is not really that big a deal, right? But Trump himself has said, no, this is, there wasn't really any files. There was no, this was was a whistle, a a sort of, you know, twinkle in our eye. Yeah. Well, in fact, no way, man. So there's a document that we published today that shows a Trump organization attorney getting into the nitty gritty, not not Michael Cohen, by the way, Mm -hmm. different attorney getting into the nitty gritty, the weeds of this letter of intent, where you see them striking language, you see them attempting to increase an upfront fee, you see how deeply committed they were to this letter of intent, which the entire organization has basically blown off at this point, right? They've said, no big deal, and we sign letters of intent all the time. Well, in this case, you didn't just put your John Hancock in. Mm-hmm. You had your 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 team outside of Michael Cohen, your team working on the actual minutiae of it. So to me, that's fascinating. Like to watch the Trump organization work internally. We've published that document. I think there's a second document that we published, and it's a very obscure email from Michael Cohen to Felix Sater. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it, it's an it's a, a blank email about a company called Platform. So sorry, and called say that again. Platformer, P-L-A-T-F-O-R-M-A. Right. And we at first were like, well, I don't understand what this is. But we had to investigate Platformer. And it's very unique. This is another massive sort of oligarch that appears to be doing business or appears to be trying to sort of gin up business with the Trump organization while he's running. It's a company that, uh, I, to my mind, I don't think has been uh, reported on before. I think one of its main investors, a guy named Sergey Gordiev, uh, is a fascinating figure. How does he figure in? Who, who is he? Why are they? What were they talking about? Why are they involved here? It's one that I would, I would certainly pay attention to. I, I don't think we've heard a lot the last Mm-mm. of this company's involvement in Trump Moscow. Sometimes I think the Trump campaign, Trump himself, and then the campaign didn't know exactly what they could use from Putin and from the Kremlin to help him get elected. I mean, obviously, they want to do this deal in Moscow. They want Putin's builder, Aguilarov. They want the commitments of all these people. They want to meet with Putin. But then they sort of hatch this idea that it can also help him get elected or that he's at least going to make a run for the presidency so that he can do something like what Manafort wanted to do, get whole, use it in some way to at least give the appearance that he had some kind of influence, even if he lost. We saw Giuliani do this. You just run a small presidential campaign, and then all of a sudden you're a statesman and you can show up everywhere. I still am not sure whether Trump expected or wanted to win or expected to lose. But in either case, he felt he needed something from Putin. What's crazy, or what I glean from these documents, is that that thing was nothing as sophisticated as what he got. The hack by the GRU on the DNC servers, the staging of those documents by WikiLeaks, it was a military intervention and quite sophisticated. Or the monkeying with social media by the IRA, the things we've seen come out in the indictments, all he wanted was the endorsement of Putin. He wanted the endorsement of Putin and he wanted him to sign off on the deal. He was literally seeking a meeting. He wanted to go overseas to shake the man's hand. There's some like kind of weird sort of patriarchal relationship, it seems like, right? Where, yeah. where he's like, I need to be patted on the head here and make me feel better. And I look like a big 
you know, big superstar developer and, and a legit candidate. And yeah. so from, from, from the, the emails, it's hard to discern, you know, how serious clearly, we know, Mr. Sater and Mr. Cohen are, they're prone to puffery, right? Mm-hmm. That, that it's, it's, it's unclear whether or not they could have actually set this up. It is not, it is clear to us that Mr. Cohen brought the plans to members of the campaign. We don't know to whom he brought those plans. We don't know what the campaign said. Clearly the meeting didn't happen, right? But it, it, there is, it's, it's, it's a remarkably different thing, right? Where you see him in his business life, hoping to get, the sort of sign off and the love from the president of Russia. Yeah. Uh, well, well, at the same time, it appears that Russia was more than happy to sort of intervene in our election on his behalf. Th- that doesn't mean there's any sort of collusion. I'm going to be like, I'm Mr. On the record. Like I don't have that. I'm not saying we have it, but it, it is a sort of remarkable um, confluence of events at the same time. It is pretty crazy when you look at this timeline and you see the way they talk internally about Putin and his sign off and what he says publicly sort of on the stump, right? I mean, there are days yeah. where it's like, holy crap, like, I didn't, you know, it's, and there's actually an email, in fact, where, you know, one day Trump praises Putin and then Mr. Cohen sends an email to Sayer that says, now's the time, sends him a link to, hmm. to you know, to, to, to the public, you know, proclamation by Trump and, and behind the scenes, he's like, chop, chop, let's go. Um, yeah. It's hard to tell whether that's a real signal or whether that's sort of a, a, a sort of business cycle kind of thing. I, it's hard for me to know at this point what those proclamations mean, but to line them up both publicly and privately is, is a pretty interesting way to examine what was going on. Yeah, you also have done a nice job laying out the letting you see what's happening publicly and privately in this BuzzFeed article. It's like you guys understand digital or something. It's something like that. That's what they say. <laughs> so part of the reason that I don't, especially in this conversation, want to neglect BuzzFeed is that you guys have been taking some hits lately. And I'm happy to see that you didn't let yourself be sidelined by this strange, people keep saying, atypical, I think it was unique, breaking of silence by the Office of the Special Counsel about an earlier article. How has that influenced just this reporting that you've been doing? I mean, I know it's round the clock. I think that the news organization, from Jonah Peretti down to Ben Smith to my colleagues as an X-Men every day, have been 100% a remarkably resilient group, right? So we have the we have the issue with Mr. Miller, where we, we appear to have caused a bit of trouble. Um, and we remain, I, I, the only thing I'm going to say is I remain confident in that story, and I look forward to further clarification from the special counsel's office. This is a story we've talked about on the show, the story where you point out from what sound like deep government sources that there are reports that Cohen testified to having been asked to lie by the president. Right. There's been some... Just saying. Just What's that? We're the only story in the past two years that has gotten Mr. Mueller's team to break his silence. Exactly. So something's going on with the story. He issued a sort of rebuttal that is unclear, and we've asked for further clarification. Yeah. All we want to do is get this stuff right. Yeah. But I, in this case, we're not getting clarification from him. We're being told to hold our ground. We know what we did to report this out. And so until we have further you know, sort of further evidence, we're, we're right where we are. I mean, it's a knowable truth. Right. Right. He either testified to having been asked to lie or he didn't. Yep. And we're confident that he did. Maybe he gave testimony that people could read different ways that Mr. Trump mentioned that I could 
change the dates on how long the Trump Tower Moscow negotiations were going on. And some people could read that as subornation, some people not. But yes, he either did or he didn't say something suggesting subornation. And you trust your sources. I mean, do you have any reason to believe that they lied to you? They deceived you? No, not at all. No, not at all. No, we have zero, zero reason to disbelieve our sources. We would, we are hopeful to get further clarification from Mr. Mueller. We really, truly are. I mean, yeah, I'm a journalist, and like everyone else, like it's you know, you, obviously this has been a rough two weeks, and so we, you know, Jason and I are thrown right into the middle of this sort of hurricane, and then you know, BuzzFeed suffers what are what we can only describe as very deep cuts, and you know, I'm not a particularly large social media. Mm-hmm. person but i you know i cannot describe to you what the last two three weeks have, have been like maybe one day we'll we'll chat about it all but uh right now we have no reason to disbelieve them standing by the story eventually this will be borne out yeah and until then until then to, to sort of circle back to your original point we're just going to keep reporting yeah. like the only thing we can think to do right if we're not getting clarification about you know the, the, the prior story the only thing we can keep to do it's like just keep doing our job yeah, yeah, keep yeah. Keep reporting, keep presenting to the public the information that we learn as we learn it, tell them the best normal truths as we possibly can. And I think that's a pretty good position to be in. Obviously, like, it's not going to hold fun, but I think at this point, we've got documents. We think that the public needs to know this. We're going to do everything we can to just chug ahead. Yeah. Right? Just keep working, keep reporting. I think that's the only way. To, you're not going to talk your way out of this stuff. The only thing you can do is report it. I think it's extremely interesting that for a long time on this show and elsewhere, federal prosecutors, Mueller watchers and investigative journalists have been seen as in sync with each other, where there are times where procedurally we diverge. For instance, someone coming in with a letter, even if that person has high integrity like Robert Mueller to a news agency and just saying this is inaccurate is not following protocol for submitting a list of corrections. Well, I mean, right. If you cover, you know, your local sheriff's office and you get something wrong about one of the sheriff's deputies, you can be sure that you're going to get a detailed letter to the editor explaining every single thing that you have gotten yes, wrong. Yes, exactly. In this case, in this case, when we're not getting that. Other news organizations are not getting that. We're getting a whisper campaign that I shouldn't, shouldn't believe any of it. And look, I, I can't I, I believe that Mr. Mueller and his team have the utmost credibility Uh, There's no reason for me. Eventually, one day we will sort, Day and I will sort this out. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that it doesn't do us, you know, we're we're in a bit of a spot now. We can't even, we don't, we don't know. It's like, well, what Rick said recently, I think it was on a a different podcast where we don't know what we got wrong. You know, Ben Bradley tells Woodward, like, you don't know what you got wrong. Hang tight and see and keep reporting. And so in this case, that's, that's sort of where we are. We're just, we're going to keep reporting. Um, I, I, you know, look, my job is to question everything, basically, mm-hmm. right? My job is to be skeptical, even of the most credible sources. And I have to tell you that I am skeptical of the government at all times. I, I just simply am. It's yeah. sort of, I, my mom tells me she loves me, right? And I got to check it out. You know, <laughs> and so and in this case, that's where we are. Again, we, we would love to get further clarification from the Mueller team, but in the absence of that and the sort of steadfastness of our reporting, our, our, our sourcing, we are where we are. And uh, I've said it all along, you know, this is going to be borne out. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident from where, we, where we're sitting. One of the remedies for just the charge of fake news 
seems to be really getting clarity about what kind of corrections are being asked for. You know, it occurred to me that for the number of times that Trump has insisted that various mainstream media outlets are fake news, he certainly has said it about BuzzFeed, the number of corrections issued is vanishingly small. You know, I remember from reporting at the New York Times, you know, you'd get letters and comments sometimes in the numbers of thousands saying, you're an idiot or you're ugly or whatever, and you just skim over all those. But it's horrible when they say, well, you didn't realize that Destiny's Child broke up in, you know, 2000, whatever it was. You got that wrong. And that's when your stomach drops because you have to tell your editor that you owe a correction and it's going to say correction appended from then on. And otherwise, everything else slides off you, even up to inaccurate, fake, whatever. Because until you tell me one actual checkable fact that is wrong with the piece, the piece just stands. It doesn't have any stain on it. I mean, I think it's a thing that I, I wonder how much the public understands what this does to us. I, it, I used to cover, I mean, this is Dayton by quite a bit, but I used to cover, like, one of my first jobs was a small newspaper in Florida, and I covered, you know, a high school prep um, sports. Yeah. And I believe I misspelled, I was taking calls one night, you know, the coaches would call in the show, they would call in the, the newspaper, and they'd want their little sort of briefs uh, in the paper the next day on the local results, and I believe I misspelled the name of a young woman, um, volleyball player, who yeah. had like done a really great job in her volleyball game. And the the call I got the next morning was from her grandma, who said, "You misspelled her name." Oh, and and I wanted to cut that out of the newspaper and put that on my fridge so that I could always have it to remember her wonderful game. And I can't yeah. tell you how deeply that has sort of, that affected me at the moment. And, it, and it still carry it with me right now that the public cares about us to get it right. And when we get it wrong, it's deeply troubling probably more to us than it is to anyone else. Yeah. Right. So you have to run the correction with the young woman's name, but I, you feel like, Oh my goodness, I let the public down. I let this young woman down. I let her grandmother down. I have a responsibility and I didn't meet it. And so it brings, you know, great pain to me. I, I think what's happening here is a little bit different because I don't really know what it is we supposedly got wrong. Uh, we're going to keep reporting until we understand what it is. Yeah. But, but, I, but I think that idea that like all of this stuff matters, even the, the, the names of high school volleyball players, that stuff counts. And yeah, sort of like, I don't know that the public understands this. This is, this is what we do professionally every day. And there is no worse feeling and like you said, to any working journalist worth his or her salt, to, to have to run a correction on, on your work. I mean, that's just the worst feeling for any journalist, sort of magnified, obviously, by the the stakes here. Yeah. Um, but yep. we're, we're, you know, we're at a point now where we, we're just going to keep reporting. That's it. I mean, we're just going to keep working. So that's why you and Jason and your other colleagues are so invested in primary documents, because primary documents speak for themselves, as you call them, receipts. And it is just, if you want to know this unfolding a meeting of about the Trump Moscow talks, you've got to understand, this is to the listener, that Trump is heaping praise on Putin in public life and saying that he has no business dealings with him while he has explicit business dealings with him that are documented in BuzzFeed right now and really deserve a look because something will stand out to you that we didn't touch on on the show. Some small detail, you you can run into favorites like 
Andre Rotsov. You can see Ivanka Trump. You can see pictures of the proposed tower. We hope that the readers, the public, will get into these documents and begin to sort of vet them even further. Maybe there are connections that we're not seeing. Maybe there's someone off working a different bit of this that we're not, you know, sort of, we don't have visibility on it. We're hopeful that they can use these as a sort of mechanism to propel their own reporting. My guest has been Anthony Cormier. He's an investigative reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you so much, Anthony, for being here. As always, thanks for doing it. That's it for today's show. Tell us what you think. Our Twitter lines are open. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And before I go, if you signed up for Slate Plus yet, you can get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. Best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. John D. Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. You can find him on Twitter at JohnnyD23. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.